Good morning, everybody. I want to ask you to open a Bible with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. That's where we'll be spending the next number of minutes together. And as you turn turn there, I'm sure that you recognize that it is that time of year again. Tonight, it will be 27 degrees outside. Yes, this is my weather. And the colder the weather gets, uh, the more I'm reminded of an article from a number of years ago that was published in USA Today by Larry Copeland about the danger of peephole driving. Growing up in Minnesota, uh, this was a common occurrence. Here in Ohio, even though it's a little bit warmer, it's still a common occurrence. You know what it's like. Anyone who's lived in the frozen north has experienced at one point or another. You're in a hurry to get to work in the morning. You walk outside. It's very cold. And you see that your car is encrusted in frost or snow. And so you break the ice and the door lock. You open the door. You start the vehicle. You turn the defrost on high and you realize this is going to take a very long time. And so you get out your ice scraper, if you're well prepared, or your credit card, if you aren't. And you begin scraping the front windshield, and about six or seven minutes later, you finally carved out a hole about the size of a large pepperoni pizza. You're cold, you're miserable, but your work isn't done. The car still isn't warm. You move around to the back of the vehicle and you settle for a hole that's about the size of a small sausage pizza. And then... You work on the side window. You throw a caution to the frigid wind. You get in the car and you drive away. And as you begin pulling up your street, it hits you very quickly. You can hardly see anything. And so you drive really slow. And you lean up toward the front window, thinking that somehow your field of view will be increased. And then you realize that someone who's driving at you is doing the exact same thing. The article concludes with the warning. Peephole driving is an invitation to disaster. Peephole driving is an apt picture of what it's like to go through life with a limited vision that comes from a limited understanding especially if you have a limited understanding or a limited view of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. The end of Mark chapter 8 marks the halfway point in the Gospel of Mark. It's a natural breaking point, not only in the length of the book, but also in the themes that it's communicating. And in our text today, we see a challenge and a warning about the nature of blindness and sight. This is what it says. Follow with me, starting in verse 22. It says that they, being Jesus and his disciples, came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again 
And he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him over, sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. Now, it's not normal for Jesus to perform a two-part miracle. At first glance, it might seem as if he wasn't able to complete the job the first time, but that's the farthest thing from the truth. Some people had brought a blind man to Jesus. It's an extraordinary thing for friends to bring, to contend for a person to the point where they bring them to the Savior and expect the Savior to heal them. That's exactly what you do, by the way, when you share the gospel with somebody. You're contending for your friend or your family member and bringing them to Christ and asking him to heal them. That's what these friends did for the blind man. And Jesus engages with the man, and we see just a very short accounting of their interaction. He takes the man aside, he spits on his eyes, he places his hands on him, and he asks him if he sees anything. Jesus never has to ask if his miracles are effective. He's trying to make a point because he knows the answer. And the man says, I see people, but they look like trees walking. The man had partial sight. After touching his eyes again, verse 25 tells us just very plainly that his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly and Jesus sent him straight home. A partial 
and then complete healing. A two-part miracle. That's a bit peculiar. You see, throughout the Gospel of Mark, the problem of spiritual blindness has been one of the reoccurring problems of people engaging Jesus. And physical blindness was often associated with spiritual blindness. Back in Mark chapter 4, Jesus quotes Isaiah 6, 9 when he speaks to them in parables. It says that they may be ever seeing but not perceiving. In Mark chapter 6, 52, we see that blindness, not being able to see, is related to not being able to comprehend. And that's a sign of a hard heart. Jesus just fed the 5,000 people. He walked on water. His disciples were still confused. They had not understood about the loaves. It said their hearts were hardened. And in Mark chapter 8, just very earlier in this very chapter, we remember that right after feeding the 4,000 people, Jesus is warning his disciples about the intention and the infectious nature of the Pharisees. And all the disciples care about is food. And he says to them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? And so you see again and again, blindness, 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 blindness. And now after all of these stories of spiritual blindness, here comes a physically blind man. How Jesus interacts with him is meant to point us to this theme of spiritual blindness in Mark. And so, verse 27, we see that the scene changes. As they're going on the way, they have a conversation. And Jesus asks his disciples, who people say that I am. And they respond, John the Baptist, or Elijah, or one of the prophets. And he turns it on them and says, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered confidently, you are the Christ. Rumors were flying about who Jesus truly was. Whether he went into Jewish towns or Gentile towns, the question remained, who is this guy? John the Baptist was dead, but perhaps other people, just like King Herod, wondered if God had raised him from the dead because John was a spectacular figure who dealt in the realm of the supernatural. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets in Jewish history. And the miracles that Jesus had been performing were so tremendously powerful, the only frame of reference that a Jew would have had to try to associate this type of spiritual power with anybody in the history of Israel would have been the prophet Elijah. Because he did some absolutely amazing things. But Jesus turns the broad sweeping rumors and he turns it right back in a very, very personal way. Who do you say 
that I am? And that's a question that will be asked of every single one of us. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he a great moral teacher? Is he an example of godly living? Perhaps he's a powerful historical figure. Jesus asks and will ask of every person, who do you say that I am? Those closest to him should know by now that Jesus asks them what they think. And per usual, Peter, quick to speak, proclaims the truth. You are the Christ, he replies. This is exactly what Jesus had been hoping that they would understand. For him to call Jesus the Christ is not for him just to give Jesus another name, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title. It's a title that means anointed one. It's a word that can be interchanged with the Jewish word Messiah. Peter is acknowledging that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior of God's people. His profession was personal, and it was real. Jeremy Bowen was a presenter for the BBC a number of years ago when they did a documentary on the person of Jesus. And as he is trying to thread the needle of understanding the historical significance of Christianity without wading into the waters of personal implication, he stated, the important thing is not what he was or what he wasn't. The important things is what people believe him to have been. A massive worldwide religion numbering more than 2 billion followers of his memory. That's pretty remarkable 2,000 years on. But Jeremy Bowen couldn't be more wrong. Who Jesus is and what he did is the foundation of faith and a life in him that has massive implications. Friends, each and every person will have to make a decision of who they believe Jesus is. You are asked that very question. And how you answer that question will point to where you put your trust, where you put your hope, where you find your joy, and how you live your life. Peter's profession was personal and it was real. But as we're about to see in a minute, it was partial and it was incomplete. Because it's one thing to say that Jesus is the Christ, but what does it mean for him to be the Christ? It's another thing to proclaim that you will acknowledge him and even follow him. But what does it mean to follow him? Well, we see in verse 31, Jesus begins to teach them. Look with me. He teaches them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders 
and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus describes to them what it means to be the Messiah. What it means is suffering, rejection, death, and resurrection. He lays it all out long before it happens for his disciples to hear. It says that he communicated this plainly. Now, if you take a big step back, remember what the announcement was. Remember what the message was. All the way back in chapter 1, Jesus comes and he announces that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so repent and believe the gospel. And the king is here. And he goes on to show that he's the king. He's the king. He's the king. And so what would his disciples think that the king would do? What kind of kingdom would this be? Is this all a kingdom of power and healing? Jesus says this kingdom is not political, that the king's goal was not to overthrow Caesar. It wasn't to free the Jews. The Christ had come. The king was here, yes, but he came to suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. That's why he came, and Peter couldn't stomach it. And so it says that he pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him. <laughs> I wish I could have heard that conversation. It's probably something like, Jesus, you can't be serious. You're the king. Jesus, you can't be telling people this. How are they going to believe you? Jesus, nobody's going to think that you actually have real and lasting power if you tell them this or if you allow this to happen, or if you do this. And Jesus' response back to him was even stronger. Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And these, I think, are the harshest words that Jesus said to one of his closest followers. Because Peter had just entered a territory that only Satan had to this point. He had tried to tempt Jesus not to fulfill his mission, but instead to take the easy way forward. Your eyes are in the things of man, and that's what man does. We take the easy way forward. This is exactly what Satan did when he tempted Jesus back in the wilderness. You might remember Matthew chapter 4. Satan tempts Jesus and encourages him to use his power to take the easy road. And Jesus rebuked him. And here, as Peter does the same, Jesus rebukes him as well. And you begin to see how these interactions start to fit together. Just as the blind man had partial sight, so too Peter only has partial sight of 
the Savior. A Christ without a cross isn't the true Christ. Isaiah had prophesied long ago about the coming Messiah and the fact that he would indeed suffer. He wrote in Isaiah 53, starting at verse 2, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The king had come and God's plan for his chosen king was to pay the penalty that others deserved. The king would be crushed for the sake of others. He would offer forgiveness of sins, but he would only do so by enduring the judgment of those sins. He would be a victorious king, no doubt about it, but he would be a suffering king. And by his suffering, by his wounds, all of those who would follow him would be healed. And Peter didn't see that clearly yet. But Jesus made it very clear. A Christ without a cross isn't the true Christ. And as the personal interaction concludes with strong words, Jesus gives some more strong words, but not just about his role as the Savior. He gives some strong words to those that he saves Their salvation will not just be a salvation of short-term temporary benefit. It will be one of long-term benefit, but of short-term difficulty. Look at what he says in verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him, the son of man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. This is what full sight of the savior and full vision of the saved looks like. A Christ without a cross isn't the true Christ. And a disciple who doesn't follow in suffering 
isn't a true disciple. That's a sobering word for the disciples who heard it. But it's also a sobering word for us. You see, Jesus indicates that following him is more than just a verbal recognition of who he is as the Savior. Peter proclaimed it rightly. You are the Christ. But when suffering was presented for this Christ, his proclamation was shown to be inadequate. Belief that Jesus is the Christ is met with action that is following. And that action, in turn, proves that belief to be true. I want to say that again because it's so important that you get it. It's not enough for you to proclaim Jesus is the Christ. Yes, you are saved through your belief in him, but that belief is associated with action, with a life. And the life proves whether or not the belief is real. And Jesus indicates that following him, it's not just proclaiming him. The recognition that he is the Christ actually has two specific actions with it, he says. Following Jesus indicate, or includes denying yourself. Now, to deny yourself means that you're willing to give up things that you might have the right to have. Something you desire something that's of value to you and you reach the crossroads and you say, I have the right to do this or to have this. I have the desire to do this. I want it. But I know that in having it, it actually constitutes sin against my Savior. And so I deny myself. If I choose it, I deny Christ. If I choose Christ, I deny myself the thing that I want. It's not just denying yourself for the sake of denying yourself. It's denying yourself when the very real things that are rightfully yours come in direct contradiction to the things of God. That's part of what it means to follow Christ. And it's self-denial. It's self-imposed. Secondly, Jesus indicates that following him means taking up your cross. That is to say that the disciple of Jesus is willing to follow on the road of suffering, that he walks, that he or she is willing to suffer public scorn, public humiliation, physical pain in some cases, and maybe even in some extreme cases, death. Taking up your cross is not simply enduring any hardship that comes your way. To take up your cross and follow Jesus is talking about the hardships that come when you're actively following him with your life. The hardships that come at work. When you stand up as a Christian, the hardships that come in your active sharing the gospel with other people, the hardships that come when you resist sexual advances from others, the hardships that come when you live in a manner that reflects that you are one of his disciples. 
Soren Kierkegaard, the famous Danish philosopher, says it this way. He says, if you have any knowledge of human nature at all, you know that those who only admire the truth will, when danger appears, become traitors. The admirer is infatuated with a false security of greatness. But if there's any inconvenience or trouble, he pulls back. Admiring the truth instead of following it is just as dubious a fire as the fire of erotic love, which at the turn of a hand can change into exactly the opposite, to hate, to jealousy, to revenge. Christ, however, never asks for admirers, worshipers, or adherents. He consistently spoke of followers and disciples. And so what about you? Do you just proclaim Jesus to be the Christ? Or do you follow him as the Christ? Oh, we're meddling now. Because when this moves from distant teaching to personal reality, the challenge comes very quickly. And there are a lot of diagnostic questions that you could ask of yourself to help you know the answer if you don't know already. If we're too scared or too apathetic to tell others about the king who saves sinners, then there's a pretty good chance that we're not going to take up our cross and follow that king when suffering is presented to us. If we aren't willing to stand for what's right in our limited spheres of influence, then how will we be able to stand for this king when the nations line up against him. If we aren't willing to use our money in a godly way and give generously to God when things are good, then what do you think you're going to do when things are really tough? If, if we seek our own comfort above many things in this life, then how will we deny ourselves to follow him as he tells us to do? This is a particularly challenging word to middle-class Western culture. Through history, and even around the world today, the diagnostic questions might be different. At the Nicene Council in the 4th century AD, historians reckon that of the 318 Christian leaders, the delegates that were attending, fewer than 12 of them had not lost an eye or lost a hand or did not limp on a leg that was lamed by torture for their Christian faith. 
A Christ without a cross isn't the true Christ. A disciple who doesn't suffer or isn't willing to suffer isn't a true disciple. And a Christianity without suffering is satanic. And so how far are you willing to go? You see, a willingness to follow a suffering Messiah sounds very simply to be a negative and depressing obligation. Sure glad I came to church today. Pastor told me life's going to be really bad from here on out. But that's the farthest thing from the truth. It's anything but, because as Jesus concludes in his remarks, he actually points that there is great gain. In fact, the greatest gain, the greatest value when you are willing to give your life away in order to follow him. And Jesus says this, he says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Let's be clear about what he means and what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that you shouldn't try to save your life if you're sick or injured or in physical difficulty. What he is saying is if you will live for yourself, whoever tries to save his own life, whoever lives for him or herself to your very best life now, then you will lose it eternally with God. Because the true followers of Christ don't live that way. Conversely, whoever loses their life, whoever gives their life away, whoever spends down their days and their resources in following and in service of this great king, for the sake of his gospel, that life will be saved. And he places the highest values on these things. What can a man possibly give in return for his soul? How much is your soul worth? It's worth everything. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of experiences. There's no amount of pleasures that you would exchange for your soul. You might say it this way. Following the true Christ gives us a vision beyond ourselves and a life beyond this one. That's the benefit of following the suffering Savior. You have a vision beyond yourself and a life beyond this one. I wonder, friends, if you uh, have been peephole driving through life. Partial vision leads to partial recognition of Christ and a vision that never makes it beyond yourself. And here's the thing, if you never look beyond yourself, if you go through your days driving with your face pressed up against the windshield because it's all you can do to see, you have absolutely no idea where you're going to end up. But following the true Christ gives us a vision beyond ourselves and a life beyond this one. 
And so the questions that only you can answer for yourself are, what are you spending your life on? What is the thing that drives you and motivates you? What vision do you have for the short number of days that you have on this planet? You can have a comprehensive vision of life, but to do so, you need a framework and a driving goal. And the driving goal that Jesus says right here in Mark chapter 8, the driving goal for your life is that you will follow the Christ at any cost. At the cost of my reputation, I will follow him. At the cost of my comfort, I will follow him. At the cost of some of my relationships, I will follow him. At the cost of my money, I will follow him. And even if it costs me my whole physical life, I will follow him. That's the vision for life. And when that life is spent all the way down to zero, there is great gain for the one who has spent it. Or you could keep people driving. And as the culture around us grows in hostility toward Christ, we need to be reminded of what it means to follow him. To not just proclaim that he is the Christ, but to follow him as the Christ. And you know what, friends? Christian history is replete with examples to encourage us. You know, early Christians chose a symbol. There were a number of symbols, but there was one that emerged among all else as a form of self-identification. And it's a symbol that Christians have used and followed for centuries. It's the symbol of the cross. Why would early Christians choose a symbol of the cross? Why do you? Some of you have crosses in your homes. You have cross necklaces that you might wear. Maybe you put a cross on the back of your car. Some of you have even tattooed crosses on parts of your body. Why did early Christians choose a cross? The cross was a symbol of suffering and sacrifice, of hurt, of pain, of humiliation, and of rejection. And the symbol of the cross for Christians doesn't just point us to Jesus and his work on the cross, though it does, but it also points us to each other because his rejection is our rejection. His humiliation is our humiliation. And as he loses his life only to be raised up again, when you you lose your life, you actually gain it. C.S. Lewis, in his famous book, Mere Christianity, writes it this way. He says, Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I have not come to torment your natural self, but to kill it. 
No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch over there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or to crown it or to stop it, but to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent as well as the ones you think are wicked, the whole outfit, and I will give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own shall become yours. Following the true Christ gives us a vision beyond ourselves and a life beyond this one. And as John and Betty Stam, early missionaries to China who had a vision beyond themselves, were being led away to certain execution by their communist captors, someone asked them, where are you going? And with all of the confidence of someone who doesn't just proclaim Jesus to be the Christ, but follows him as the Christ, someone who doesn't just live for themselves, but who has a vision beyond themselves, someone who knows that this life being spent down to nothing points to a greater life that is ahead. John Stam replied that he didn't know where the guards were going, but we're going to heaven. Following the true Christ gives you a vision beyond yourself, gives you confidence in the days ahead. It helps you to understand that you have a life beyond this one. And so the questions for you are, do you proclaim him to be the Christ or do you follow him as the Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the plan of suffering and glory did not happen to your son against his will, but that it was the plan all along. We thank you that we are the beneficiaries of it, that because he is the Christ and was pierced for our transgressions, we can have peace. For any of my friends here today who have yet to put their faith in him, I pray that today is the hour that they will make their proclamation and be forgiven and have peace. For all of us, we thank you for the reminder, for the confrontation of what it means to look beyond ourselves and to follow him. I pray that you would help us to do this that you would give us courage in the midst of suffering, that you'd give us hope and joy as we're privileged to see our Savior for who he is and that we would live accordingly. We need your help in this, we pray. In the mighty name of the King, King Jesus, amen.